Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Nice to meet you, man. Yeah, and you. <laughs> I'm back up at um, my folks at the minute, so I've kind of built like a little, you know, like a kind of little sound booth out of uh, duvets and stuff and kind of pillows. Oh, really? Where you live? Where? Or your your folks are? Where? I'm almost in Glasgow, but I'm uh, I'm back up in Aberdeen. Oh, nice, moment. man. Aberdeen show. What about yourself? Are you LA? Yeah. Nice. How's everything there at the minute? Is it kind of settled a little bit after the election, or? Yeah, I think. I'm not sure what the rules are at the moment for, you know, as far as the pandemic is concerned, but like restaurants are no longer doing, a lot of the restaurants were turning parking lots into outdoor dining. I don't think they're allowed to do that anymore right now because things are getting out of hand again here. Just cases kind of soaring. Mm-hmm. I think they always knew that it would, like this summer, they knew that this was going to be bad again around this time of year. So yeah, what's going on there? How is, is, is anything open or? We've kind of just gone back down into shutdown again today. They've closed all the bars and stuff again, all the restaurants. We're in a weird kind of thing at the minute. I mean, we're not too bad case-wise. Like, I think we've had, it's not as bad as it could be. I mean, you got, I don't know what you guys are at the minute, but it was kind of soaring a little while back, was it? Or um, Like mortality rate or just... I just both, I think, where the cases and mortality was kind of going up. <sighs> Shit. Admittedly, I'm not, you know, paying as much attention as I used to uh, to, like, the figures. Uh, my dad actually had it really bad um, a couple of months ago. So that was scary. And it was, that was pretty alarming because I think for the better part of the year, it felt like something that you just saw that you were obviously taking seriously and you're wearing your mask and you see it and think about it every time you step outside. But it was a lot different when it sort of came into the, to the family in the house. I think I've, I have a little bit of COVID fatigue in that aspect. Um, now that he's improved, thank, 
Thank God. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where everything's at right now. It's very confusing. It can be best to kind of stay away from it a little bit. Not not be ignorant, but just it's. I mean, it's not healthy for you to kind of just be looking at it all the time. Yeah, the and, and that stuff. was like the election too. I think. Um, I mean, it depends what side you're on. I I had to unplug from everything actually, social media wise this year. I wasn't able to control how I was engaging with it, whether it was uh when all the protests were going on and the election and the pandemic, and it was such an overload. And I think it was just driving people crazy, like legit crazy. And I just wasn't making me feel good, you know? And I think I was using it a lot less for um, what I originally intended to use it for in the first place, which was promotional things for music. And it just became way too much time. Like it was a time suck. Well, all of a sudden, uh, when you download these updates on your phone, <laughs> these software updates, and all, and it tells you how you're spending your time on on your phone. You know, if you're playing games or if you're whatever the hell you're doing. And then I saw how much time I was spending on social media, like on a pie chart or whatever the hell it was. And I was like, "Is that was that three hours today? It wasn't three hours, but it was something ridiculous." And I was like, "This is this isn't good. I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm just." wasting time. I don't even know what I'm doing. Do you feel like you've got a lot more time now that it, now that you've stopped? Have you kind of noticed an increase? Or? Um, <laughs> no, not really. I don't know that it helps my productivity like at all. Anything I could do to sort of feel less anxious just day to day, uh, I think I have to try to work in that direction. It's hard for me. I don't really remember. I got rid of it in May. It was nice. I mean, you really don't think much about it which is cool because it's something that you're engaging with every day and then you take it away from yourself. And then the first couple of days you pick up your phone just kind of when you're bored and the app isn't on your phone anymore. You can't go into it and you just kind of put your phone down and then the days go by and you're not even thinking about it anymore. So I remember I got rid of my Facebook around the time we were making the first Voids album and I had the same problem. This was in 2013. And I was like, this isn't making me feel good. I don't want it anymore. And I got rid of it. And there's an adjustment period for like a few days. And then, and then that's it. And then you don't really think much about it. I'll go on to Twitter every once in a while. I still follow some things on Twitter that interest me, some news. Um, like I link to a lot of things off Twitter, National Geographic and, you know, some music blogs and I follow like Brian Eno and David Crosby. Stuff and that kind of enriches your life a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Things that um, it, where it's, it's just more informative and less like I'm not going into the comments or the thread. I don't want to see any of the chatter. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess like what you were saying, that it's like any addiction, isn't it? Once you kind of get over that hump, those kind of first few days, you're kind of in the clear for the most part. Yeah, I guess I would call it an addiction. I, I didn't I wasn't thinking about it that sort of dramatically. It was just more of, um, but I, I, I suppose it is. It's because it's so normalized, isn't it? It's like what smoking was in the 50s. No one really thought of it as an addiction. It was right. just it a was, part of life. Yeah, it's a habit, a bad habit. And it works for some people. I mean, this is, this is for me. I, I, there, but I got to say, a lot of people I talk to, friends, whoever, I, I rarely meet anybody that is, they're like, I love Instagram. Yeah. I'm on it and I'm posting things. Everybody seems to not like it, but very few people get rid of it, uh, you know? So 
it wasn't doing much for me personally with a lot of my own individual art projects, um, music releases. I just, I, it wasn't doing a lot for me other than probably sort of making me feel good about announcing that I was putting something out. There was some narcissism or I just, I just it wasn't, it, w- it was doing very little as far as improving or drawing anybody toward any of the music that I was releasing on my own. And because I was able to figure that out, I just then was like, well, why do I have it? Because most of my close friends, I have their phone numbers. I can text them. I'm not really engaging with, you know, close friends through it. I would just send somebody a text and blah, blah, blah. What kind of led to that, that realization? Was it something that kind of prompted that shift in perspective so that you noticed it was kind of occupying? Um, I, I think it was just a general hysteria, you know? I mean, it was me, it was my own sort of rolling my eyes at myself, just being like, what have I done for the last 40 minutes while I'm just sitting on the couch and I'm just checking out whatever. <laughs> and I cut, you know, I put the phone down and I'm like, holy shit, it's three o'clock already? What, what just happened? But then it was also just a, it was just hysteria. It was just the self-righteousness of everybody, you know, putting their political beliefs and, you know, societal, you know, beliefs. Every, everybody just spewing their, their vitriol and self-righteousness. I, I just constantly found, and these are a lot of friends of mine too. I was just like, I don't really give a shit. (laughs) I just don't care. (laughs) I don't want to see this anymore. I don't even, you know. I just thought it was making people crazy. It was just making people absolutely crazy, which these apps are designed to do in the first place. Disinform, misinform, stoke passions, and just get everybody riled up so that they engage with the platforms more. It's not really there to do good. There's, there's the potential. It's like the internet. It's the same thing. There's a lot of potential, but I think it's a net negative if I'm really sort of stepping back and assessing everything yeah yeah you almost feel like the wrong guy has ended up in charge like if you had like an elon musk type figure in charge it would maybe be a little bit of a different story but when you've got someone like zuckerberg i mean what was the quote he put out was it not like what's good for facebook isn't necessarily good for the world like it's crazy it's like that that's nuts (laughs) now at the same point it's also it's also people's fault to an extent though i mean i'm not pro zuckerberg in any way but we spent four years going mad over Donald Trump. Nobody even thought that this imbecile stood a chance when he was running in 2016. You know, but this is, it, it, there's a certain sort of, um, I don't know, psychological, intellectual sickness in society that manifests somebody like that. It's more of a reflection of, of what's going on with people really, than, uh, than specifically the bad guy in charge. And um, so sometimes how we behave on Twitter, Facebook, all of this social media is, I'm not saying it's, it's all, a lot of it is a reflection. And I think people have to take a certain responsibility for themselves. Interesting, because we always speak about this need almost at the moment for a political revolution to overcome, overcome quite a lot of the struggles we're going through. But do you think it's almost more like a moral revolution we need something from within in terms of like a, a personal basis yeah and and sometimes those two things uh intersect but yeah absolutely i mean it's not good to be worshiping you know reality television 
super personalities and have these be, you know, the really benevolent <laughs> leaders of, a, of, a, of, a, of our time, you know, whether it's, I don't even know who, a Trump or the Kardashians or whoever, I don't know. I, uh, I try to live under a rock, you know, when it comes to like a lot of aspects of pop culture. Which sounds very pretentious, but um, it's just that I find it a lot of it really irritating. Yeah, it's interesting what you say there about you know this idea of worshiping these kind of social media icons. Because I mean, the, the kind of loss of religion that we've seen over the last I don't know while in kind of in terms of modern society, it's all well and good. But if you're just going to replace kind of looking up to religious icons with looking up to social media icons, it's kind of there's no point. Like you're getting rid of one kind of thing mm -hmm. that causes some problems for something that's probably just going to cause more. Right. Yeah. And that might be a real aspect of human behavior that needs these types of figures, whether they're political, you know, religious, cultural, these types of, these types of figures to, to look to. It seems to be the case because a lot of these parallels, you can find them everywhere when you go back through history. You know, we're at a certain strange moment right now because of advancements in technology and communication you know we're we've never really i mean there was the printing press and there were profound advancements <laughs> that were introduced that really jolted human communication and um it took there was a period of adjustment being like how are we going to deal with this new thing i think when literature and books were invented People thought that they were, it was potentially going to destroy our memory. Yeah, I don't know. Crazy times, man. I, <laughs> I certainly don't have the answers. I don't know. Kind of continuing on though from what we were saying about, you know, looking up to people, do you have anyone in your life that you look up to? Even on a personal or a wider basis when it comes to kind of... Um, you know, he would roll his eyes at uh, hearing this, but, my, you know, my dad is maybe my, you know, <laughs> my hero, uh, which made it super scary when he was going through what he was going through this year. They live in Chicago. I'm out here in LA. So this was the first Thanksgiving that I haven't been able to have with them in uh, 15 years. I usually go home to visit this time of year. So that sucked. And then him and I would do road trips once a year um, where we would go to national parks and we, he, we'd fly out somewhere and rent a car and we would drive around and go to. Uh, I don't know, just, just hit the road. And, uh, and we, we haven't been able to do that this year. So, but yeah, I, you know, I, my dad, I think is, uh, is just the kindest, friendliest guy I've ever met. Um, and just a good, a good person. And, um, everybody is, is trying to get through, get through the day, man. So if the least you could do is go out there in the world and try to be cool to people, I think that's, um, that's a good start because everyone's trying to pay their bills and, and get on with it. And life can be super hard and painful, especially in a year like this when people are out of work and struggling. So I have to remind myself sometimes to just try to keep it together, you know, whether it's going into a cafe to get a coffee and it's taken forever and you're irritated waiting in line just just to calm down, you know, because um, everybody's trying to figure it out and it's important that we be loving to one another. <laughs> Sorry if that sounds, uh, you know. It's true though. Mm-hmm.
How did you how did you find LA for that then when you first moved there? Because the kind of cliched impression that we have of that in our minds is something that maybe doesn't quite fit into that ethos. But is that true or is it is that kind of a a stereotype? Um, I think it's a stereotype. You know, it's easy to blame this city for being you know what it's always been. You know, this is a place where people move to pursue their dreams, whether they're actors or writers or musicians, you know, the industry, you don't have to come here, but there are opportunities here and it's very competitive and it can be hard. So I think a lot of people blame the city when I think their expectations might've been too high when they got here, that things were going to simply go well. It's, you know, it's tough. So I think as far as the entertainment business, I think that that's, that's one thing. But the city itself is a great, it's great. You know, two guys in the voids actually grew up in Los Angeles, um, Amir and Jake. And I love when I'm driving around with them and they're like, oh, well, this is where I played baseball in junior high. And because it's such a transient city, so many people move here from other places. So they're allegiant allegiance to this city isn't as strong as wherever they they came from. And so you don't really get to experience what this city is through people's eyes that are actually from here. And I think when I get to do that, it, it feels homey and it feels like um, a, a more soulful place than just this superficial, whatever the, the, the cliches are that, that people knock it for. Yeah. It, that took me a while. I, it, there, there was an adjustment for sure for the first few years um, where I wasn't sure if I did the right thing. I was working in restaurants and wasn't really doing much, spending a lot of time with my dog and was just nervous about, about everything. Yeah, I don't know specifically what happened when I just sort of settled into the city. I just, some time went by and I, it became home. I don't know re- exactly when that happened, but it happened. So I love it here now. I actually, I daydream sometimes about moving somewhere else and living somewhere a little slower, <laughs> you know, uh, somewhere in the woods or something, but I don't know. Yeah, LA's fine. How did you find recording there? Because you did, it was the first voyage done in New York, but then the second was done in LA. Yeah. Um, recording, how do I find recording in LA? I mean, is it different to recording elsewhere or what, how much does the kind of environment play into it and factor into the... Oh, well, a lot. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. I mean, New York, the first Voids album was super unique because it was the heart of winter. It was freezing cold. Um, we weren't able to record until very late at night and early in the morning because the studio was on the fourth floor of this building. Directly underneath us was a bookstore that would have been able to hear all of the low end, the bass and the kick drum pounding through the floor. So uh, it was arranged through a friend of ours so that we can record in the middle of the night. But um, there was a lot of politics involved in allowing us to do that. So we were like werewolves, you know, and we would step outside. So just being in New York City in winter and recording, you know, when I go back now and listening to Tyranny, some of that is is baked in to the way that the album sounds. It just it, it just yeah, for is. Sure. Where Virtue was done at a couple of different studios in LA, uh, one where we've been working mainly now, which is in Amir, who's one of the gu- guitar players, has a studio in his backyard 
Uh, it's sort of a converted garage ga- uh, guest house. And it's great. It's very calm. You know, the sun is shining and, and uh, it's very comfortable. It plays into it, but we painted the room black and we've had to sort of inject a certain sort of anti-LA vibe into the room just to kind of maintain the balance, I think, you know. (laughs) So, yeah, I think in that way, all of those different variables and elements matter in how they inspire you before you go in to record or make something. I think you do get a sense of that in the second record, that what you're saying there about the idea of, you know, recording in the sunny place and painting the room black, it's almost like, the record almost sounds like, you know, the sun poking through the trees. Like it still has that darkness that the first one did, but it kind of has a slightly poppier sheen to parts of it and kind of bringing in the light and kind of, there's more of a balance between the light and dark on the second record than the first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was all, I mean, it was never discussed to step more toward that you know, in that direction. I don't know why that is other than what we were just talking about. Maybe it is a New York, LA thing. There's a mysterious quality to a lot of this stuff that is better left sort of unanalyzed. Um, But I suppose you're right. I haven't really listened to either of them in a while, but I know that, yeah, I think you're right in saying that. It's interesting what you mentioned there as well about how it wasn't discussed. Do you almost have a way now of communicating with other guys in the band where it doesn't things certain things don't need to be said, and you're kind of all on, on the same page and in the same headspace all the time? Um, I don't know about all the time. I mean, um, like there's meetings, business meetings sometimes that we all are sort of trying to get on the same page, and but there's very rarely like creative meetings where we're sitting around. If we do, it's much more casual. It's not like sitting around being like, okay, what are we going to try to say or what are we going to try to do on this album where there's that kind of intention? Uh, what are we going for? I, it may behoove us to do that. I'm not sure. It just happens. I, the, we get the room set up so that we can all arrive in the studio at any given point. And I think the first thing generally when we're getting together is there'll be a jam. The first hour is very casual and we'll just sort of jam. The Pro Tools is always running. So it's capturing everything that we're doing so that when we do get to work and we're starting to work on structuring a song, like we'll take a dinner break or something and we might for our own amusement, go back to that first hour just to hear if anything that we played was interesting. And sometimes it is. And it was just whatever combination of things happened to everybody on their way to the studio that day that we were playing that way that day. You know, sometimes it's one of our sort of pyramid of bones. It's more of like our heavy metal kind of side. Sometimes it's um, our more sort of world music. I, I, I don't know. It's all over the place. I'm not really sure how any of this works. I can't, you know, I, I'm almost the worst person to ask. There's something nice about it still being a mystery. Yeah, I, I think that that's really the best way to not get in your own way and just keep things feeling as open as possible. The more that you start to figure out what it is that you're doing, then you're depriving yourself of some kind of magic. You're showing up with some sort of an agenda. Um, which again, maybe works for some people. It might work for us instead of keeping everything just, you know, in, in the sky's the limit. You know, let's just see where the day, the winds just sort of blow us on any given day. It keeps it fr- fun and fresh. And I think that that is important. 
for it to remain fun. Sometimes, sometimes there's hard work to do too. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure. Do parts from those, you know, when you've got the Pro Tools running the whole time, do parts from that ever, you know, sneak into the music? Like I'm thinking of the end of the new single, Alien Crime Lord. Mm-hmm. I think you've got a little bit of kind of room sound at the end of it, kind of just leaking in. Oh, yeah, that was the very, very end, that like major chord at the end. Yeah. That was a real take that we just thought was super funny. Just the, having this crazy song going and then ending with that moment that was a real take yeah that was just but that was before there was even any sort of arrangement it was clumsily coming together and there was something about the way that we just sort of landed on that moment at the end that we were like that has to be exactly like there's no way to learn that and have it be is good because everyone's sort of playing too good then at that point you know what I'm saying? Like you yeah, can it feel lets the personality come into it too. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Every song that we've ever done, trying to think when this wasn't the case, Curious, which is the name of one of our songs. Um, there's a couple that I that aren't coming to me right now that happened that were produced. Like everything that we have, whether it's a demo that I'm sending to the guys or that Jake is sending to the guys, because all of us are writers and producers and have studios at home. So a lot of the times we're just sharing ideas with each other that we're making by ourselves and those will get brought into the room, but we need to be able to perform them together. It's very rare that we'll just take a track and work with that being like, oh, well, this was Jeremy's idea and he has the session the pro the you know the pro tool session let's just put that on a hard drive and bring that to the studio and work off of that really never works that way we'll listen to his demo and then we'll play it like a band and hopefully not have to beat it to death before it's done you know where we're because it's a it's very tricky to not sort of what we were just talking about before get you know where you're where you're harming (laughs) <laughs> the idea at a certain point by learning it and playing it too well. So, but that's another, again, that's sort of a philosophy. That's just a philosophical thing that works for some bands and doesn't work for other bands. I don't think that there's one general way that you can think about any of this stuff. It's just the way that we do it. But we've talked about, we have talked about wanting to finish things quicker. So there might be, there might be a time up ahead especially with things being what they are now. I mean, depending on how things go with the pandemic and our ability to get together and work, which has to be so scheduled now because everybody has to get tested before we work and quarantine for that. We're working basically a week to 10 days a month with the expectation of finishing a song, one song a month. You know, if this gets dragged out, we might have to work where, you know, we are just working with someone's demo. And maybe if it needs bass, I can send the session to Jake. It's very easy to record remotely. It's not ideal, but a lot of bands are figuring out ways to have to, you know, to survive right now and to be able to finish music. So, Do you notice a, a difference in the writing when you do that, when you're working remotely as opposed to in a room together? Well, I mean, the live element, the bleed into the microphones, you know, sonically, that might be a, a certain quality in the recording that you'll notice isn't there. They'll just there'll be a certain isolation in the instruments, perhaps. Um, It depends. I mean, it depends if everybody, like there's a couple of songs that have keyboards that I never even played 
which is just fine. And then there's other songs where, so maybe everybody doesn't put their touch on it, but it's a drum machine running instead of, because sometimes it's cooler to have a drum machine than a live drummer for a certain track. So like a song like Curious, not, that's very rare in our case because we have Alex, who I think is my favorite drummer in the history of drummers. He has a, you know, he can dial up a drum machine on his SPDS and play it and make it sound better than a drum machine because he can play those tones, but have put a certain sort of feel into it and a certain swing that those machines aren't able to, you can't program that into them. But sometimes that's cool too. I mean, Curious is similar to Alien Crime Lord in some ways. Like they both have that kind of slightly Middle Eastern feel at some points when it kind of comes to the soundscape of it. Well, I think we, that we did talk about, you know, I think the, the sequencer, the bass sequencer that's running throughout the song, the do 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 you know, the low thing, both songs have that. So that might be something within the instrumentation that people are hearing that they think is, makes it sort of a cousin of Curious. Uh, as far as the Middle Eastern influences and stuff like that, that's just a part of our, our interest, uh, our interests in uh, that we, we love world music. We all thankfully like a lot of the same types of music. So whether that's African music, Middle Eastern music, Turkish, you know, anything, um, we're always looking for inspiration from all over the world. And that's something that I feel like really has sort of stayed with us for a while. Some kind of Middle Eastern sound. Uh, I hear it a lot in Julian's auto-tune in Amir's guitar. And I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from either, other than just something that feels good when it's coming together in the room. Do they typically run on different structures to Western music? Are they quite different in terms of the theology? You know, kind of Middle Yeah, I mean, there, you could get, you know, this is... There's obviously the microtonal music, which we don't, we don't use, the, we don't have those notes really in, in Western music. We're not really taking it that far. I think, I can't, I'm not sure if Amir has ever used the saw, this Turkish guitar on any of our songs. Do you sample Predator in this new song as well? Who's that laughing at the beginning? Oh, um, shit, man. What's that from? I thought it was the Predator laugh, but I wasn't sure. It could be. I don't know. Kind of slowed down a little it bit. May, it might be. I think um, that happened during the mix. And uh, we're actually doing the Tonight Show on Thursday. And we did a live version of the song. And Julian did the laugh in the room on the intro. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that, that sounds pretty good. And demonic and sinister. I was like, I don't actually know. I think it is sampled, but I don't know what it is. Some 80s movie. I mean, in terms of the chronology of it as well, was this song, when you think of the lyrical kind of side to it, was it written in the wake of the kind of police brutality or was it quite a separate thing? Because there's, there's some kind of connotations of that. Yeah. Um, that's more of a question. I sort of stay out of his way lyrically. Um, trying to remember when the Grand Theft... Because this song is for Grand Theft Auto. So I think that the lyrics are as much about, yeah, what was going on this year with police brutality. And, but I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I can't really comment. I'm not sure what he's up to lyrically half the time. And uh, any singer that I work with, I usually sort of stay out of, stay out of the way there. Does what the singer does ever change the way you feel about the music? 
like something for Curious, for example, where you kind of, you did the beat for that, right? Mm-hmm. Does the way that feels to you change when you kind of put the vocals on top of it? And it, does it alter it in any way for you? I mean, it usually makes it, when I'm at home making something, because I hate the sound of my own voice. I have songs that I've released where I sing, but I just hate my singing voice. So I go through a phase of having a track that I think, oh, this could be an instrumental song that's going to be amazing and people are just going to like it as an instrumental. And then if I send it to Julian uh, or any singer that I, that I'm, I work with really, and then I hear a real voice on it, it always makes it better to me when it becomes a song. So yeah, it alters it, but in a good way. I remember for Curious, Julian, I sent that to the guys and they all wrote back sort of individually. I didn't put that on the text thread with everybody. I sort of sent it to everyone individually Probably because I didn't want to have my feelings hurt if somebody didn't like... No, I'm kidding. But, um, and Julian, they wrote back right away and they were, they really liked it. And he sang on it, which is real quick. He turned around some vocal idea really fast. That song came together so quickly. That's a good sign when that happens with songs and with creativity, just when there's a flow state happening. And the fact that he threw a vocal melody on really quick based on his first reaction to hearing the song, is a good indication for me. And the melody was so good. Anything that he sings on that, I, that I'm still at this point that I'm lucky enough to have him sing on of my own, I'm thrilled about it. Yeah, I love it. Well, you were saying about your own voice as well. Is that why you kind of leave the coastal kite stuff like instrumental, kind of just jam music? Is <laughs> well, that, uh... you know, I, I send that music too. Um, I send it out to to Julian. And um, if there's somebody that I know vocally that while I'm working on something that might be interesting, a friend of mine where I'm like, oh, they would sound really cool on this. I'll get an idea. Or if someone's over here and I have a songwriting session and I'm just showing them other things that I'm working on, sometimes somebody might be like, oh, what's that idea? That's really cool. I was like, wow, I never would have thought to play that for you. But maybe get on the microphone, just start improvising a little bit and let's see if anything cool starts happening. The Coastal Kite stuff, vocals and songs have a tendency sometimes to slow down as you're working on something because if, it's, if a song is ever going to get released through a band, the whole process just kind of like slows down sometimes because you're working with an artist who, who's a singer. Coastal Kites is really just an outlet for me to be able to finish things quickly. I like that I don't have to go through a singer and it's just this ambiguous instrumental music. I like that it lives in that, in that world. So I'm not, I'm not really doing it for any other reason than that. There's just an ease with it. There's no expectations. There's nothing at stake. Um, Amir's guitar playing, you know, on, on a lot of the songs is so, cause that's Amir from the voids playing a lot of the instrumental soloing and leads are so good to me that I almost don't want to hear a singer on some of that music. You know what I'm saying? I really love that band Krungbin. Uh, I don't listen to a lot of new music, admittedly. Um, it's not anything that I'm proud of. I just don't spend much time really digging for stuff. And, but they're a new band that I really like. His guitar is so great. I just, I don't really need a vocal on that music. Um, cause sometimes lyrics and vocals have a tendency to tie a song down. There's a great ambiguity to an instrumental piece 
that when you're listening to it, you're letting go. You're not, you're not judging it the same way. As soon as there's a vocal tied to it, it's about something, which is great too. Um, but sometimes there's, yeah, just a great, beautiful ambiguity to music without, without a lyric being tied to it. Does that kind of tie into what you're doing on the last Voyage record a little bit as well? Because you kind of have the idea of the fragility of language and like all words are made up and it's kind of, there are points in that record when you funnel the vocals to quite a lot of effects that they are kind of almost unintelligible and it becomes more about the emotion. Is it different, you know, trying to communicate in a song when you don't have language, whether that be instrumental or kind of obscuring the words a little bit in the language? Again, that's like a Julian thing. I don't really know. He's having fun with these vocal effects. And I think they're inspiring for him and he's good at using them and it works for us. As I'm telling you this, I remember there was this one album that we were really into around the time of Tyranny, which was, um, oh, it was called Songs from Saharan Cell Phones or something like this. Oh, I've heard this, but the guy takes the, the microchips out of them. Exactly. He was taking the memory cards out of discarded cell phones that he was, some of them are established artists in, uh, in Ma, you know, Mali and Ghana and, and all of these people that we've, are popular in their own country. And uh, so a few of them are established artists, but a few of them are really at just DIY demos of artists using old drum loops, like Fruity Loops from the early 2000s. And they have this real sort of crude, but awesome production quality that they're using. Um, anyway, it's a lot of Middle Eastern and... Uh, and, you know, North East African music and very sort of DIY sound. And we just loved it, man. We listened to it all the time. And there were a couple of tracks that had auto-tune on it. And I think that was really inspiring. It holds up now. I have it over here on, on vinyl. I haven't listened to it in a while. But I think that, that we were really turned on by that music at that time. And I think Julian was too. Vocally, I, th I think that he thought that this could be something that could be a new discovery for him that can unlock his mind a little bit. Because it's not on every Void song. You know, there's songs that he's singing without effects and, and you hear his, his great, you know, sort of direct voice coming through. And then there's times where his voice is sort of tucked into the mix. Yeah, it feels almost like another instrument sometimes. So Yeah. It's an interesting one, that record you bring up as well, Songs from the Saharan Desert, because... This was kind of back in the time as well, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I think, when they used to swap songs over each other's phones through Bluetooth. Like, it was very much an ingrained part of the culture. Is that, that's kind of the story behind it, isn't it? That he would, he went around collecting the, the SD cards out of them with all this, the, the songs that the locals had kind of been switching or trading across each other's phones, right? Yeah, I think you're right, actually, yes. Uh, I, I forgot the label. I wish that I could plug the label. It's so, it's so great. But yeah, that is what it is. He, he's, he's curating these uh, compilations based on what he's finding. Just, just yeah, old memory cards, songs that he's finding on, on that part of the world. Fuck, I almost want to grab the record. I have it right here. Let me see yeah. if I can plug it out. Um, if I can't find it in two seconds, I'll come right back. Here it is. Are you... Do you, uh, is this going out on YouTube? Could people like see the video? No, it's just going out on audio. Music from oh, Saharan shit. Cell okay. Phones, Volume 2. I'm, I'm basically holding the record up for everybody <laughs> that's the, listening. What's the label to. it's on? Um, oh, of course, man. Sa uh, Sahel Sounds, S-A-H-E-L 
sounds. And uh, they're on Instagram, they're on the social media, and they're really good. That was an account that I was following. There, before I kiss goodbye to Instagram, there were a few accounts that I loved that made me want to stay that I was, I was finding a bunch of great stuff on, you know, just sort of graphic design um, accounts and record labels, cool people doing cool things. And, um, and this is one of them, Say Hell Sounds. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but you should definitely check them out because they have a ton of cool artists and support them. Definitely. Yeah. Where did you get that record? I got it on tour. I think we were in Seattle when I found it, record shopping. I'm surprised I remember that. But it's funny though, isn't it? Whenever you have a record, you almost seem to remember where everyone came from. Like each one has a very kind of specific memory. <laughs> yeah, it's like the high fidelity thing when uh, his friend is coming to visit his apartment and he's got stacks of records all over the place. The guy that works at the shop with him and he's like, how are you organizing these? Not alphabetically. He couldn't figure it out. And then John Cusack is like chronologically. And he's like, whoa, that's, he's basically in the order that he remembered getting them. And he's got thousands of records. So I probably could, I don't have a huge record collection. I got a few hundred over here, but I, I could remember where I got all of them. I think you're right. Yeah. Are you quite picky about what you get on vinyl? Do you kind of tend to hold I back am when now, you shout on the things you really love? Yeah, oh, well, definitely. Yeah. I, um, again, mentioning, um, a mirror from the band is, is very, up on hi-fi and uh is a super audiophile guy like next level i couldn't even explain the terminology and the vernacular of this stuff i i don't i don't know but i let him put together a a little home hi-fi rig for me here because listening to records at his house sounds incredible all a lot of my old records tend to sound quite noisy and scratchy with this new system i really like invested in a a pretty sweet setup. So I can't listen to a lot of those old records anymore just because just the, the noise is too noticeable. And it's so I'm having to go find when I can new reissues, but good, you know, quality uh, repressings of old favorites. And um, so, yeah, I am more selective because they tend to be quite expensive. And of course, I'm trying to save money these days so i've got to really pick them out wisely but yeah i mean when it comes to the the music you make though you do sometimes kind of go for that slightly noisy or vintage type feel on it is it quite a tough bat or how do you actually how do you achieve that do you record on old equipment or do you put effects on it um when it comes to kind of dirting it up a bit and making it sound pretty vintage? yeah i guess that's it just sounds good to me i um there's a couple people that i'm working with that are like pop singers you know they're they're in in the pop world and that's fun for me to try to be one of those types of producers sometimes where i'm using very clean fat like 808s you know just really clean product cleaner productions things that you hear on on the radio these days but for a lot of my own music whether it's coastal kites i guess like mainly that if i'm recording guitar with a mirror yeah, we, he has an old Ampex machine, which is 50s. I do like when there's a bit of, yeah, just a bit of dust on, on some of the tones. I, it's, it's just the way I like it. I don't know. The Voids is probably the same way. But I think you can achieve a combination of new modern sound with a few of those elements. You know, if you're really just trying to make old sounding music, those records really already exist. So I think that it's about 
riffing on as many ideas as possible and maybe creating your own soup. Do you think the future of music at large will primarily sound kind of retro or futuristic? Um, man, I, I don't know. I really have no idea. Retro, I mean, maybe the pendulum will swing toward a less laptop program sounding time where you're seeing bands again. It seems to always happen where there's like the pendulum that goes back to pop and then comes back to, you know, you have the slick pop music of the 80s and hair metal going into a much more raw time, early 90s, whether that was like, you know, with grunge music and everything, but also with the hip hop, which was much more sample based, you know, it was dustier. It sounded, I like it. I like that sound of, of rap and hip hop much more than like today's rap for sure. And then, you know, in the late nineties, everything goes back into slick, high fidelity, you know, alternative rock and, you know, <clears throat> in sync and all of these boy bands and everything. And then in the early two thousands, there's a resurgence of of rock again and indie rock. So it seems like there's always this thing that happens. And I think we've been stuck in this time for a while. But I don't know. Again, a lot of this is because of how music's been commercialized recently, where it's so ubiquitous and it, there's just everything all the time. It's hard to tell where we're headed or what's going on because everything exists in the palm of your hand. That's never happened before in the history of time. You know, the recording industry is barely 100 years old. And so to have every song almost ever <laughs> available to you in your hand whenever you want is, is insane. So I don't know where things are headed. I, I have no idea. I'm pretty pessimistic, if I'm being totally honest with you, which is it doesn't make me happy to admit that. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty pessimistic <laughs> about in general uh, about popular. No, 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 no. Just about the uh, about the quality of culture. <laughs> what about when it comes to bigger world events? More optimistic or no? Similar? I'm pretty pessimistic, man. I uh, again, I it it breaks my heart to, to to say that. I'm rooting for the good guys, you know, but whoever they are, wherever they may be, but um. It's going to be interesting to see what this uh, pandemic does because it feels like it's kind of smashing things up a little bit and it's hard to tell whether they're going to reemerge in the same way or maybe we're going to see a slight reformation, a slight rearranging. Yeah, a lot of it to me is, is that, yeah. It, but um, I think most of it is sort of communication-based. It's like internet-related. It's how we behave with each other in this time Mis and spread, you know, fear and misinformation and panic and hysteria. It's more that because everything else is, we've been here. There's been pandemics. There's been tyrants. History, the blueprints of all of this stuff exist in every history book. Uh, as much as we refuse to kind of turn back and really learn from you know, whatever mistakes we've made in the past. It's all there for the learning, but we don't for whatever reason. Um, the thing that's new in all of this, when you compare the last huge pandemic, which was, you know, the Spanish flu, you know, a hundred years ago, which was happening during World War One. I. I mean, think about what was going on in the world at that time. What's happening now almost pales in comparison. 
you do have a climate change and there's, there's other things now that seem a little, you, that we need to be a little bit more concerned. I, again, I don't know what the data, how closely we were watching these things 100 years ago. The new variable in this giant equation is definitely social media and the internet. And when things are in a post-truth era, I, it, I don't know how you get things done. I really, I really don't. So it's going to see, it's going to be interesting to see how we, going back to what we were first talking about with Zuckerberg and the gatekeepers, how they manage a lot of this with our First Amendment right as well. Because if you, if you tuck a lot of this stuff away, you don't allow these, these voices to be heard. They find dark little sellers. I don't know that, that burying them uh, is the answer either. I don't know. I, you, can ta- you can make yourself crazy talking about this self, talking about these things with yourself. No, I, I get what you're saying, though. I mean, the obvious, like, like, yeah, like what you're saying, they're burying things isn't usually the answer. I mean, if we look at climate change, that's a perfect metaphor. We've been burying stuff in the earth for the last 200 years trying to get rid of it, and it doesn't, that's not what works. It just makes the thing worse. It kind of reemerges 200 years later with catastrophic effects yeah yeah it's kind of a metaphor it would be the same thing you know these people will come back in some other way 10 years down the line or whatever yeah no we're certainly not good to the planet when it's devastating it's so heartbreaking but that's why these pandemics i think happen is is we suck up (laughs) resources from the planet and treat it like that like a a resource instead of something that is alive that we that we that we're living with. There's almost a lack of connection. Uh, that's like what we're saying, we're speaking about social media enabling us to communicate in, in a way that we haven't previously at the same time though it is removing us from the actual real world. Yeah, because of- again, it's, that's a f- another aspect of the communication when we're not, our phones are, are, you know, our heads are buried in our phones and we're not interacting with humanity the same way. You go to any restaurant, cafe, you step out into the street, people are out, but they're not seeing what's going on. You know, they're constantly engaging with their phones and spending more and more time on a computer and everything. They're probably not spending as much time visiting national parks and, and connecting to nature. And, uh, and that's too bad because I think if people did, they might, they might change how they feel about things. I don't know what the answer is there. I, I don't know. See, but the flip side is, is that you have, for example, George Floyd, that video wouldn't have gotten circulated without social media and phones. So there is, some of this stuff is good too. These, we need to see these horrors that are happening in society so that we if that was just something that was being said, that you know, somebody went onto their social media and wrote, wrote a blog or wrote a post about having seen it, but people didn't have that firsthand video, um, I don't know that the same reaction, it would have sparked the same reaction. And I'm glad that it did. Yeah. I was speaking to a guy on the podcast the other day, actually, who was saying, you know, we're speaking about it feels like things are really bad at the minute. Part of the reason for that is, like you're saying there, everything's now exposed. It's like we've lifted the rock up and we've seen everything that's underneath and there's now this ability to see all the horrors in the world at once and that's possibly why it seems so much worse when it's maybe just as bad as it's ever been. But yeah. it's not necessarily worse if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Are there any systems in the world that you have faith in? 
in, in society. No, well, just to kind of try and bring listen, it. Listen, I mean, just just for the record, I'm back. not, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not super gloom and doom over here. I just, um, but, but maybe I, I apologize. I, I came off a little abrasive. <laughs> I was trying to sling the pendulum yeah, yeah, yeah. back towards I, the positive uh, side. I think that there's amazing acts of generosity and kindness and and um, altruism that 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 I see all the time as well. And I I I, I do have faith in hum in humanity too. I I don't know. I guess I'm. It's always shifting. The balance is always shifting. Um, do I? I don't know. Uh, ask me that question again. Is there any, is there any country? Are or... there any systems in society right. that you, you have faith in? Ah, pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, we're speaking, we're speaking about a lot of the big kind of issues facing us at the moment, which is something you see on the last Voyage record where you kind of, I think you open on a question or you, no, you definitely close on a question. What does it matter? You know, it's a record that's asking a lot of things. If, if there was any question that you could know the answer to, what would it be? Um, wow. Gee, great question. Who built the pyramids? Who killed JFK? <laughs> um, <laughs> is that what you were asking, by the way? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Anything going back for... for... Man. Um, those are two right there. Yeah. I mean, JFK is an interesting one because we... I think we know it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald on his own. We're kind of halfway there with that one. I think there's people that still probably believe the lone gunman theory. Um, I don't. I don't know if they're ever going to... seems like they're always... It's right around the corner. They're about to, you know, release some, some memo that was buried somewhere. And then they don't. So I, I feel like we'll never really know who knows what. Yeah, if I had to guess, I would. I don't know which mob. I don't know if they were from Chicago. I don't know if they were from Buffalo or Philly. I don't know who it was specifically, but it seems to be mob. It has that look and that feel, and certainly um, they did a lot to antagonize those people who were super responsible for putting them into power in the first place. So uh, <laughs> it's always yeah. going to backfire. It's like the Irishman. You know the film that came yeah, exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah. Did you like? Did yeah. you see that? Yeah. How'd you same like thing it? In that, I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's the same in that. He fucks them over once he's in, and it just doesn't doesn't work out for him. No. Well, you know, his he appoints his brother Bobby to attorney general, and you know, it really came down to one state. Really, it was a very close election to Illinois, and I think the mob was sort of orchestrating a lot of multiple <laughs> what people are saying is happening now where there's dead people voting and people voting twice. I think that that was happening in that election. It was very, very close. So they were very instrumental in putting that together. And I think that they thought by getting them in the White House, that was going to allow them a certain maneuverability, speaking of the mob. And when that didn't happen in RFK was cracking down on them, they both you know, they both got assassinated. Yeah, they took Bobby out, was it a few years later? Four years later? Six, 68. Maybe a longer. Yeah, was Bobby Five, Kennedy. Yeah. That was a weird one, though, too. That one doesn't seem mob-related, mob but that one has... Uh, there was a great pop podcast. I think it was part of the Crime Town series. What, you know, gets into the Sirhan Sirhan conspiracies and secret society that was... That used... What a hypnosis to... I don't want to get too far into it, but it's really interesting. If you can find it, I, I can't remember the name of it, 
Um, if anybody out there is looking for a good podcast to listen to, it's, it's about the RFK assassination. And I'm almost positive it's the Crime Town series. Are you quite into your true crime? Um, not really, no. I was, I, I was talking about this with my sister last night. She's into the forensic the forensics shows and, and those documentaries and everything. I'm not, but I'm into politics, uh, history and politics. I'll pay attention to assassinations of great leaders in the past and read about who may or may not have been behind, <laughs> you know, taking those people, taking them out. Have you um, learned anything from, you know, you're saying that you're quite into your history to a certain degree. Have you learned anything from looking at the past recently? that's made you think differently about the present and the era we live in? Um, well, yeah, we were saying before, there's good and there's bad. There, it's always been, because you'll hear a lot of times now, people are throwing around the word unprecedented this, and there's never been something like this, and there's never been that. It's always fucked up. It's always been messy with human beings. Uh, politics has always been corrupt. There's a sameness to just about everything when you go back and really look at what was going on at any given time. That could be Roman Empire, that can be shit, that can be 200 years ago, or even today. It seems like there's always villains and there's always heroes. There's people that are really pushing hard to make strides uh, of improving the lives of people that are up against mountains of, you know, pe people trying to prevent them from doing, doing good. And there's, you know, whether that's Martin Luther King and Gandhi and whoever, the list goes on and on. There's, there are great benevolent heroes and then there are corrupt authoritarian, you know, demons, avaricious, horrible people and I don't think that there's one time that you can point to specifically where they are like they had it all figured out wow look at that I don't think so there's always been struggles and trying to figure out how what's the best system for as many people as possible but there's always been greed there's always been love there's always been violence there's always been compassion it's always it's always been there can you find comfort in those, um, those kind of timeless things? Yeah, to me, it, 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 helps, it helps explain a lot because that's what I was saying. You, you go on to the social media now and you think all of a sudden, holy shit, things have never been like this ever, but they have. We were, the, the, the only element really is what we, we it's just has been like the theme of this episode, I feel like, is the, <laughs> is the internet. Information has changed now. And there's really been nothing like it. That you can say unequivocally is like, is true. You, you know, if you were ever mailing a letter, you just think about immigrants coming to America, you know, hundreds of years ago. If a man left and endured this journey crossing the Atlantic Ocean before he sent for his family to come, that's insane now that he wouldn't be able to send a text <laughs> en route being like, well, there's a thunderstorm and people are getting sick. There's cholera and blah, blah, blah. He would have had to have gotten here, mailed a letter, which would have taken forever, hoping that it's going to get to his family, that some drunk mailman is going to be able to like pass this on to some... The way that people lived now, we can't even fathom this, you know? Everything is so instantaneous now. And that, again, is the big question mark, what we decide to do with with this, with modern communication and technology.
Is this why we, you know, is this why what you've just described there, we're so far removed from that? Is that why we struggle to learn from the past, do you think? Because we can't connect to it in that way because it feels so distant, even I, though there are clear yeah, parallels? I think so. I mean, I, I also think people just, people don't read anymore, man. And I don't, I think people feel history. This might be a, another aspect of how we evolved. You know, as soon as our great, great grandparents feel further and further away from us, their history starts to become something that we can't relate to anymore. I think people can talk, it's, there's a verbal power in how we feel things. If you, if somebody's grand, grand I'm Jewish, um, none of my parents died in the Holocaust, grandparents uh, died in the Holocaust. Uh, but I have close friends of mine whose grandparents survived and didn't survive. And that's a firsthand account. That's history that can be told and felt. You, you, you feel it. As that starts to slip away, as the decades go by, there's people that have any type of agenda can start toying with that history however they like. And the masses don't relate to that history anymore. I don't think people right now alive feel the, the effects of World War I, you know? Unless they go back and like watch The Crown or these, you know, big things in, in pop culture that come along that do a good job sort of uh, enlightening people to these things, World War, you know, either World War. We've, education is as big of a part of what lies ahead for us, you know, whether that's if it works out for humanity or not. We were talking about climate change, you know, technology, but if education is, is huge. If people aren't learning from the mistakes of the past, that's just this cyclical sort of folly of mankind that I think um, we need to watch out for. But uh, certainly the, the climate doesn't care one way or the other, you know, who is president or whatever. And that is going to be another problem, whatever agricultural things, things, things that we're up against, whether that's floods, droughts, all of the reactions to, to the planet to ecosystems that are collapsing, um, that might have real, you know, bad ramifications for, for human beings too. Sorry, this sounds like the darkest podcast ever. I mean, am I, do you talk about these types of things with other guests or are you usually, usually talking about records and, and music? It always and ends so up getting a little bit existential. Okay, good. I feel like well, good a result know. of the time we live in. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. People are going to be like, man, that Jeff Kite. Wow. What a, what a bummer. <laughs> Uh, no, I get I get what you're saying though. I mean, it's yeah. it's all linked. Do you do you find yourself thinking about the bigger existential kind of end of the world climate change? That's what I was trying the- to say. I I don't, man. I mean, I'm a, I try to I'm I I try to be as happy as possible and as kind as possible. Try to be realistic about what's in my control, and it's within my control to step outside and be friendly and cool to people and clean up you know, look after my community. It, it's really, it's the cliche, but it's thinking globally and acting locally <laughs> type of thinking because I can't change the world. There, you know, as one musician living here in Los Angeles, but it's about being realistic about the things that are within my power and doing the best that I can with that, you know. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.